0: Namaskaram.
1: Hola. 안녕하세요.
2: Ciao.
0: Namaskar. Yesus.
1: Hi there. I'm Celine. And I'm Maida. And we're the hosts of ESRs on Air, a podcast by researchers for science enthusiasts. This is the first podcast of the BQ-minded European Training Network.
3: Welcome to the third episode of ESRs on Air. Today we will talk about clinical MRI. And to give you a bit of a behind the scenes of an MRI radiology department, Maïra and I invited two of our beaky minded colleagues.
1: Hello everyone. Our guests and friends today are Dennis and Roberto. Dennis is a PhD researcher at the ULIS Research Center in Germany, and Roberto is a PhD researcher at the University of Antwerp, hosted by ICOMetrics in Leuven, Belgium. Thank you so much for joining us today. And before we start the conversation about the clinical use of MRI, I would like you to introduce yourselves to our listeners. Maybe Roberto, you can start.
2: Hello, everyone. First of all, thanks to inviting us here. And uh, as Mayer said, I'm Roberto. I'm doing my PhD in the University of Antwerp and I'm hosted by Echometrics. In My background, I did a Master in Medical Imaging and uh, I came from a Bachelor in Telecommunication, but then I got really passionate into the medical image and for this reason now I'm doing this PhD here in the University of Antwerp. I'm an Italian guy, as you understand from my accent. Yeah, that's all from my presentation. Great, uh,
1: Dennis.
0: Hi Celine, hi Mayra, hi Roberto and everybody listening in. My name is Dennis and I'm from India. I'm currently pursuing my PhD research in um, Forschungszentrum Jülich, Germany, which in English translates to Research Center Jülich. My background is medical, so I'm a physician from India who have a keen interest in medical technology and medical imaging. And that led me to explore research in the area of quantitative MRI currently as part of the EU-funded project BQ Minded.
1: Great, it's very nice to hear different people from different backgrounds in the same project and working with clinical MRI.
3: In the second episode, we talked about the how and why of MRI, how an MRI scanner works and why you shouldn't be afraid of having an MRI exam. And today we actually want to build further on this and we want to talk about the clinical use of an MRI. So my first question to you guys is, in which situations would a clinician refer a patient for an MRI exam?
2: wow this is a really like a nice and great question celine i can start to tell to you that for example uh, mri all of us and all of the clinicians to see something that is not possible to see with naked eyes uh, so it's possible to see uh, behind the structure of a body and uh, why this is needed for example if you get a cut or damage in your skin you can clearly see with naked eyes if you are healing and you can follow the process of feeling in that case. But if something happens in the organs, for example, in the brain, how you can check and how you can see if something is happening there or better, if you are healing, if you have a disease. And the only way to do that is by using an MRI, for example. Uh, However, uh, one question is uh, why we are not using a a CT or X-ray that are faster than a, a magnetic resonance image. One answer is that magnetic resonance image it's much better in giving a greater image of the inside part of a body. So MRIs can create a better picture of organ than soft tissue, For example, tonal ligaments, herniated disc, lesion on the brain, that compared to CT images. So in the end, I want to conclude this question telling to you that many are the reason, but the biggest reason to have an MRI is to check what is happening inside the body of the person, inside the organ of the person. And in that case, doctor can follow up a disease or can even decide what to do with that disease, if starting a treatment or not.
1: Yes, that's very comprehensive. That's why sometimes we use a CT and also an MRI. That's my next question. What's the difference, for example, on an urgent trauma MRI or a person that has a long-term medical complaint? Would it be used together with different uh, techniques?
0: Uh, yes, Myra, thank you. Uh, as Rob quite nicely described, MRI is a powerful tool to look inside the body non-invasively. And especially for soft tissue contrast. This is where MRI stands out uh, in contrast to CT and ultrasound, X-ray imaging, which mostly X-ray and CT especially focus on the heart tissues, the bones, which you can see clearer. But MRI has this unique, uh, incredible capability of looking uh, in-depth into soft tissue, and which is why both on urgent basis and on a long-term case, MRI would be very, very beneficial. However, in trauma care, MRI may not play that crucial role as compared to CT and x-ray and this is basically because MRI has a slight underside which is basically that MRI takes long and it's more cumbersome to operate and there are more safety aspects to consider before putting a patient into the MRI scanner as opposed to CT and uh, x-rays. For example if you have a fracture you go for an x-ray and if somebody has a stroke the one hour after he develops the stroke is very crucial to decide the treatment And this time, we cannot lose by putting the patient into MRI and trying to get the scans, though the soft tissue scans would have a much better contrast as compared to CT. Hence, CT is preferred in such cases. So, in acute cases like fractures, ligament tears, stroke, and traumatic brain injury, the first mode is usually the CT and X-ray, which is then followed with an MRI later. And this is basically because the other modalities are a bit fast. But in the long-term management, here is where MRI becomes very crucial because for sure, any complication in the brain, it's a straightforward MR scan that is taken. CT is not even considered. Simply because MRI is a much, much more powerful tool in localizing the lesions uh, and uh, pointing out the issues in case of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, for planning tumor surgeries, lobectomy, and extra, the list is endless. And MRI really is able to efficiently point out these lesions and help uh, clinicians plan a really good management protocol.
3: Okay, thank you, Dennis. That was very clear. Rob, could you maybe give an example of a specific clinical case or a disease for which we would preferably use MRI to detect and or follow up on?
2: yeah indeed I can give you an example <laughs> I'm laughing because I am the example and I have the example in my body I come from a multiple sclerosis and I'm taking MRI since 15 years ago so indeed if I have to give you an example is exactly in multiple sclerosis however uh, MRI as Dennis said before it's used in many diseases, not just in multiple sclerosis but in this answer I would like to focus on multiple sclerosis because I know really well what is happening there first of all in multiple sclerosis there are lesions that appear in the brain and in spinal cord and these lesions are not possible to see for example with CT or X-ray so the only way to see this lesion is the magnetic resonance image i have to admit that MS it's really complex disease because sometimes you can have lesion in your brain but you can have no symptom on your body so Detecting the lesion is extremely important because it means that the disease is progressing even if you're not see physically by the examination of the body by the doctor. So in that case, the MRI is telling the doctor, okay, the disease is still going on because there are lesions in this MRI, so you have to take action. You have to change the treatment, starting a treatment, and this uh, is where the MRI is helping right now to the doctor in the treatment decision, for example. In case of uh, MRI with multiple sclerosis, usually the MRI is taken every six or 12 months. Uh, I have to admit that just yesterday or two days ago, uh, they came up with the new guideline for MS patients. And exactly in this guideline, it was stated that MRI needs to be taken each time that we switch treatment or there is an important event. In case of there is no event or whatever, just to follow up, it needs to be taken every year. And after many years, if everything is stable, you cannot even take MRI every year. However, it's really crucial to have an MRI for patients with multiple sclerosis. I just want to point out something. We have to know that nowadays, for example, in multiple sclerosis, there are many treatments and one of the most difficulties in this pathology is exactly deciding the right treatment for patient. And for this reason, an MRI is helping a lot. What is the correct treatment? Uh, so the optimal treatment decision. Uh, yeah, what is the part of the body analyzing uh, in multiple sclerosis? I think it should be quite clear, is brain and stem, so spinal cord. The spinal cord part, usually it's taken uh, not that often as the brain. First of all, because uh, when you have a lesion in the spinal cord, it's rarely that you don't have symptoms. What I'm telling here is, okay, you can have a lesion on the brain without symptoms. That is quite common. So you need to do an MRI every three, six months to check if, if there are silent lesions. But in the other part, if you have lesion in the spinal cord, uh, most of the time, it corresponds some symptom of the body. So for this reason, the two parts of the body are treated different. Uh, you have to take a follow-up every six months, one year for the brain. But every perhaps two years for the full spinal cord. And indeed, uh, MS without MRI would have been really much worse than than now. So thanks to the MRI, we have a lot of treatment uh, and uh, we can check that and we can reach a lot of endpoint. And this is really thanks to the MRI. And it's one of the reasons why I'm here studying. So, yeah.
0: Uh, Maybe if I can add to that. As Rob nicely described, in MS, it is very crucial to get an MRI scan for every management protocol that they plan, simply because MRI is really powerful in telling us exactly what is going on in the lesions and how active it is. But also there is a huge other spectrum of diseases which MRI really helps to tackle and diagnose, which comes under the soft tissue diseases of the body, for example, muscular atrophies, ligament injuries, especially in the knee, which is very common. the ankle and uh, other joints as well and also uh, any kinds of nerve palsies even in these cases uh, mri is really powerful to make an accurate diagnosis of the extent of injury
3: yeah Yeah, that's what uh, my project is focusing on in this bq-minded consortium follow-up of acl ligament tears with mri thank you dennis
1: yeah, and maybe a question actually to both of you and also Céline on this, because when we talk about looking at the structures and seeing lesions or seeing a tear, what are we really talking about? This is this just the same image that you take for every body part or is it different? Is it a combination of images? Maybe if you guys can talk a little bit more about that.
3: In the case of musculoskeletal uh, MRI, looking at the knee for example, The radiographer will typically use sequences that provide different contrasts. So sequences that give you, for example, what we call a proton density weighted image or an image with a T2 weighted contrast. And he will acquire this image in different planes, different orientations to really have better coverage of the entire joints at a good resolution. And he will also acquire images with, for example, fat suppression. So images where the fat is actually doesn't provide any signals so that we can better evaluate for edema in the knee. So a buildup of, of fluid, which is typically an indicator of, yeah, that something is wrong with your knee.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. And also speaking of the diseases of the brain, for example, we have majorly three compartments, white matter, gray matter, and CSF, which have excellent contrast between them and this contrast is basically based on physical quantities like proton density t2 relaxation t1 relaxation susceptibility and diffusion weighting so these contrasts exist already in the body the mechanisms for the contrast and mri just taps into them to give us a wide array of contrast of the images which we can utilize and which give slightly different information each And the advantage being that we have multiple sources of information, which is basically the multiple contrasts, which can be all taken account from different contrast pictures. And so each of these contrast images give a unique information which can all be combined to arrive at a conclusive diagnosis and a conclusive management. In MS, because Rob already has given us the example of multiple sclerosis, Very common that they use flare, turbo spin echo, T2 weighted turbo spin echo, and also T1 weighted contrast. And what is also important here is that sometimes they use an agent, a fluid called the contrast agent, which is injected into the veins before you scan in the MRI, which enhances the contrast in the lesions, depending on the intactness of the so-called blood brain barrier, which gives us additional information on how active or how much well supplied the particular lesion is, and this contrast, for example, the most commonly used one is gadolinium, and so they inject this before the MRI, take an MRI, and you get images which give us more information. So there's really a wide array of techniques that you can actually apply in MRI as well to come to a conclusive diagnosis of the disease.
2: Thanks, Dennis. I think gadolinium is one of the most powerful tools that uh, we have right now to check when a lesion is active or not. But in the same time, this powerful tool that we have, it may hurt in somehow the body of the person because they detect after some studies that this gadolinium can stay in the body for a really long time, can stay in the brain for a really long time. And uh, up to this point, we don't know if this can cause some problem the people that are injected with gadolinium moreover you have to think that it's not once in the life that people are getting gadolinium but usually the gadolinium is injected to people with a mess that they need to follow up every three six months or one year amount of gadolinium inside the body if this gadolinium doesn't go away it increases in times they know that it's still in the brain of some people after many years but they don't know what is the effect For this reason, I would like to introduce that many researchers, as be commanded, are working on some new advanced technique in order to avoid the use of gadolinium, but to reach the same goal that gadolinium does to the people. So we are working in a way to detect active lesion without the use of gadolinium. And how we can do this with really new technique of MRI that even if they are not used in this moment in the clinical routine, but I can assure you and all the listeners that this routine are studied every day in our lab in our research and for this reason i would like to introduce for example the diffusion because diffusion is one of the most advanced techniques that can help a lot in this way because the normal modalities that dennis has already explained and that we acquire during a session of acquisition are the t1 the flare and so on are called MRI because in that case we are checking the structure of the brain, for example, white mother, uh, CSF, and gray mother. The diffusion is a modality that allows us to see the microstructural of the brain. We are going really much more in detail in see what is happening in that microstructure. And perhaps we can detect that there is an active lesion without injecting the gadolinium. So this advanced technique is quite interesting to use in the future. And we are studying to do this.
1: In my project I also work with diffusion MRI for traumatic brain injury in which we use some metrics so instead of using qualitative images that we are just evaluating with our own eyes, we can create quantitative maps in which we can do quantifications about the alteration in the brain. Oh for example, if there is a lesion in the white matter, how can we really identify based on quantitative metrics? This is very interesting. And not only on diffusion MRI, but we can also use quantitative metrics in different techniques. Uh, there's also functional MRI and geography and many other techniques that can be used to identify lesions or just alterations. Now to my next question. How is it relevant to combine the symptoms that the person is describing and use the images for a further management of the situation?
0: Uh, Yes, that's a very good question because it is very relevant and it is very important to correlate and compare the radiological findings with the clinical symptoms and vice versa. For example, in neurological cases, it is always said to medical students that 90% of the diagnosis is during the time of history taking of the patient. That is not in the examination phase, but when you are actually talking to the patient. So that's that's how much it is important to to interact and to decode the symptoms in neurological cases at least. So definitely if you find a lesion or any radiological finding, that is why the last line of a radiological report would be please correlate with clinical symptoms. That is because it's really important to not completely judge based on the scan but also see the symptoms, the other investigations, the other relevant investigations and then come to a diagnosis Because, for example, if you find just an incidental small lesion in the scan, it doesn't mean anything unless the patient actually shows symptoms. So you see, okay, there is a small lesion, but then does he actually have symptoms? If not, then you just wait and then get a repeat scan. After a month or two, you just don't start treatment. So it's always important to correlate clinically as well. So what I was trying to say, radiological diagnosis aids, but does not bear the sole responsibility of diagnosis of the diseases because the history and other investigations are equally important.
2: Yeah, then it's just one thing I want to add. Uh, I'm laughing in this because I always remember my neurologist that was telling to me, we always cure the person never the image. So when we have to apply yeah. a <laughs> cure, it's like about curing the symptom of the person, not the image. So if person here are listening and they're thinking, okay, I have a small lesion or whatever, don't, don't worry about that because Most important thing is the symptom that one person has, but indeed MRI is a good predictor of that. So it's good to have a follow up every three, six months if there is a small doubt that something is there.
3: The (laughs) diagnostic process that you're talking about, Dennis, is mainly based on structural imaging. Is there any room or potential for advanced MRI techniques in that sense? Is there already maybe a trend towards the use of more advanced techniques? like these quantitative techniques that we were talking about and that we're all working on?
0: Yes, yes, I I totally think so because the future of MRI, as I see it, is moving more toward not subjective but objective definitions of the lesions. Towards this goal, towards this direction is where our project BQ-Minded comes into picture and also what we all are working on uh, that is basically quantitative MRI is to try to shift the paradigm from the qualitative and the subjective way of looking at the images to a more quantitative and objective way of looking at images. Maybe Rob can also add more on this.
2: I totally agree with what you're telling and we are going through the quantitative epoch era to the new technique that we were talking before. So for example one of this can be the diffusion. I like to think that soon we'll be into clinical use and this is because there are much much more info in the quantitative in such diffusion MRI compared to the structural one another thing that we have to think is that up to this moment why we didn't use the diffusion in the clinical role because we didn't have that much power as we have now so to process a diffusion image we need extremely power from calculator but now the era is totally changed we have calculators that they are extremely powerful and at this point we are in the moment that this quantitative MRI needs to be used.
1: Yes, if I may also add that in BQ Mind what is very important for us to bring quantitative MRI to the public. That's why we are integrated with a Scanner Company as Siemens Health and with the researchers that are going to be able to implement it in companies as Icometrics, Quantib and other companies as MR Solution also that will make these changes available for the clinicians. That's why it's so important to have projects as BQ-Minded or other European-funded projects that are really trying to fill this gap.
2: There is even another important point here. Many people are working in BQ-Minded and this is to speed up the scanning time. So thanks to a new technique that we are developing, patient don't have to stay too long inside the scanner. And yeah, this is a proof that we are even working, always thinking about as last point, improve the life of the patient. Yes, Maire, I totally agree with you on that.
3: So we can conclude that MRI is already a very powerful diagnostic tool and that there is great potential in all the advanced techniques that we're currently working on. So maybe to wrap up, Dennis, can you talk about some important considerations with respect to clinical MRI?
0: Yes, thanks, uh, Celine. The future of clinical MRI is definitely very exciting and very hopeful to look forward to in my experience in the field of research in MRI in the last two, two and a half years. I could see that there are plenty possibilities where clinical MRI can really advance and some of them being ultra high field MRI. Currently, the limits of the magnetic field is being pushed. So now we have seven tesla clinical mri being granted approval for use in patients currently and also further people are trying to go to 9.4 tesla and so on Uh, especially in force center mulich here we have a seven tesla and a 9.4 tesla mri scanner as well which is being used for um, research purposes now but the advantage with this with such high field Is that you get much better signal to noise ratio which allows you to go to a much finer detail of the lesions Uh, so that is one direction which is really promising but it again comes with disadvantages of an inhomogeneous B1 field and the problem with the specific absorption rate risk in MRI which is the SAR risk which is basically that you have to avoid overheating of the tissues and this problem increases with higher fields and so Just to sum up with the ultra-high field area, the work is expanding at a rapid pace, but you also have challenges to overcome. But definitely many researchers are currently working towards this. And where our project comes into the picture, we try to push, as we said before, from the qualitative paradigm to the quantitative paradigm, signaling a major paradigm shift, and also to accelerate the MRI process. So it is important to know that though MRI is majorly believed to be safe, with no harmful radiation. It is a bit uncomfortable, to be honest, for the patient and for the volunteer to be inside in that claustrophobic environment with a lot of noise being pumped into you. It is a bit uncomfortable, though it gives us a lot of detail of information. And hence, we would like to minimize this time that the patient spends inside the scanner. And this is where our acceleration techniques, which we are working on in our project, will come into the picture. And yeah, So it really seems very, very hopeful for me. And I'm quite excited to see what advances MRI can offer to the clinical world.
2: We can conclude that the future is bright for MRI.
1: Okay, very good. Thank you very much for participating in this amazing episode about clinical MRI, where the magic is happening. So maybe you guys would like to say something to our listeners that are thinking about going to a research field on clinical MRI. What would you say to them?
2: Uh, If you would like to do research in MRI, please just do it because we need more people working on this field. And I would like to say that together we are stronger and we need many person to work in this field.
0: Perfect. Yeah, it's definitely very challenging research in MRI. But at the same time, it is much more exciting to see what advances are being made currently in the field and how you can contribute. So I would definitely say just go for it. And yes, together we are definitely stronger and we can achieve great things in research. So thank you, Mayra and Celine, for having me on this podcast. Thanks a lot.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mayra and Celine, for giving to us this great opportunity. And let's hope that there will be more episodes in the future, but I'm sure that they will be.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much for participating. It was so exciting to talk to you both today. I hope that our listeners liked us a lot and see you guys soon.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
3: We hope you enjoyed the third episode on clinical applications of MRI. If you want to know more about our European-funded projects on quantitative MRI, or if you have any questions about European-funded research opportunities in general, feel free to send us a message through any of our social media channels. Just look for BaQ-minded on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Hit the subscribe button and follow us on the podcast platform of your choice. Stay tuned for new episodes of ESR Air. Bye for now. This project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and
3: Innovation Program under the Marie Skłodowska-Curie Grant Agreement number 764513. The institutes that make part of Big Minded are University of Antwerp, University of Leeds, Erasmus Medical Center, Jülich Research Center, ZIMES Hertinnen, Antwerp University Hospital, MR Solutions, Icometrics and Quantim.